have your black Bibles, but first join me in prayer. Dear Lord God, thank you that we have the opportunity to gather for worship today. Thank you for Geneva and all the ways you have blessed us. Bless Terry as he delivers your word today and help us to listen and apply it to our lives. May your Holy Spirit help us to serve you more and more every day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think of you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Phoebe, for such a good, clear reading of the word. Good morning again. This is the second in the series that uh, Pastor Jim has put together, praying uh, for, uh, through the Psalms for four Sundays. And my psalm is Psalm 63. And it would be good if you would keep the psalm in front of you so that we can look through it together. But I'd like to uh, start by talking a little bit about or exhorting you a little bit about how to read psalms. Uh, perhaps the most governing word for how to read the Psalms is attentively, paying attention. What's going on and how do I get into it? Uh, If you look at the fine print as reproduced underneath the Psalm 63 in the bulletin, it says, a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Now these notes underneath the Psalms are not as old as the Psalms as far as we know, but they are at least there before the third century before Christ. So they're pretty ancient pieces of reflection on what the Psalms are about. So this is David in the wilderness of Judah. Remember the story? If you want to look it up, it's 2 Samuel 15 through 17. Uh, David has not done a very good job as a father, unfortunately, and his oldest son, Absalom, is in rebellion and wants to claim the throne of uh, Israel before his father is even dead. In fact, he's mustered an army and he's marching toward Jerusalem to try to capture and destroy his father so he can take over the throne. Uh, His intelligence services tell David the army of Absalom is on its way, and so David decides to flee. And this psalm is the result of the next few days. Uh, If you can't imagine him, uh, he goes out of his palace, down through the eastern gate, uh, down into the valley, then up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, and then down the Mount of Olives toward the Jordan Valley, a total trip of maybe 20 miles. 
And once he gets over the top of the Mount of Olives, it's dry, rocky, a little bit of uh, brush along the way, no springs, until he gets down to the Jordan Valley. And then he has to ford the river, and then he heads north a little bit. He takes some of his army with him, his closest personal warriors, and other people who are supportive of him and would be probably threatened by Absalom. And so this band of people makes its way out from Jerusalem. And two priests appear carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which is so precious to David. But David says to them, no, I don't want you to bring the Ark of the Covenant. It may be the Lord will bring me back. And if he does, I want it to welcome me when I come and worship. But if he doesn't, it'll be here for the next king. An amazing act of faith on David's part. So he and his people make this long, hard, terrible journey. And out of this experience comes Psalm 63. The second thing I would call you to pay attention to is that in this psalm, David is praying. And notice how personal is his prayer, if you look at it. Oh God, you are my God. This is you and me. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And so on and so forth. This is David at the roots of his being in this time of crisis, talking to God very personally, whom he knows very personally, bringing his heart and his experience before the Father as he goes. My original um, title for this, uh, before David came up with a name for his series, was Imagining a Psalm, or Imagine a Psalm. My argument is, until you can imagine yourself in the experience of the psalmist, whatever that happens to be, and we don't have a lot of data, even though we have this data for this one, in many cases we don't, it's very hard to grasp what's going on in a psalm. And of course, many of them, most of them, are very polished pieces of poetry. And think about David uh, composing this piece of poetry in the process I just described to you. Uh, It seems highly unlikely, doesn't it? (laughs) Probably what happened was, because he was a very experienced poet, He had thoughts going through his head as he's walking up the hill and then down, down, down to the Jordan Valley. Things come to him. Of course, he doesn't have a little, uh, what do you call it, to write his notes on on the way. But he has a good memory, as everyone did then. And he collects these things. And probably when things calm down a bit, he puts it into a poetic form and probably polishes it as time goes by. He may even sit there and sing it when he's done. You know, he was an accomplished musician and uh, has a scribe with him, undoubtedly gets it written down somewhere. So that's the process. But until you can imagine yourself um, somehow in the psalmist's world as they write this, it's very difficult for these psalms to become personal for you. And uh, here's C.S. Lewis commenting on the psalms and uh, in his characteristic way. This is from the introduction to his book, Reflection on the Psalms. He says, it seems to me appropriate almost inevitable, that when that great imagination, that's capital I, he's talking about the Lord, when that great imagination, which in the beginning, for its own delight, and for the delight of men and angels, and, parenthesis, in their proper mode, of beasts, had invented and formed the whole world of nature, 
that great imagination submitted to express itself in human speech, that speech should sometimes be poetry. For poetry, too, as a little incarnation, giving body to what had been before invisible and inaudible. Psalm 63 is an incarnation of David's experience. And that's why imagining helps us to grasp what goes on. So if you look at the text, I want to go through it, first of all, and see what we can learn from the actual contents. Verse 1, imagine David in this trek that we've talked about, leaving behind his tent of worship, which housed the Ark of the Covenant, walking this long way, really, really hurting because of the rift and tragedy of the story of his son Absalom. And it won't end there, of course, if you know David's story. He's hurting emotionally. Physically, I imagine, um, this is a sort of escape from danger, so he's hurrying. I'm sure he's tired, and as I say, there's no natural sources of water along that route. So he's dry and thirsty. He's physically hurting, and I think he's spiritually hurting. When he thinks about how he raised, so to speak, Absalom, and how he conducted the affairs of his family, I'm sure that he's confessing to God, I really made a mess of it. So I think he's a complete, utter wreck, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And what he needs is not water. What's it say? Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It's not water he's after. It's after the Lord. He wants the presence of the Lord. That's what his heart and soul long for. And lo and behold, as I was preparing this sermon a week or two ago, the latest version of Christianity today, uh, fortnightly as they call it, came to our door, and there was a big article by Mark Galley, who is a senior editor for the magazine, called The Everlasting Desire. It's page 58 or 59, it starts. I just want to read a portion to you. It's titled Desire from Beginning to End. The most vivid example of desire for God is King David. David was known as a man of action, a military leader, a nation's king, someone busy with the affairs of state. But the characteristic that seems to have earned him the label, quote, a man after God's own heart, Remember that from Acts' description of him? The label that he earned was the fact that he sought God with all his heart. And then Golly goes through the first three verses of Psalm 63. And he says, of course, other examples abound, but David isn't the only psalmist to yearn for God's palpable presence. Psalm 42 was written by a descendant of Korah, whoever that might have been, and famously begins... As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Same kind of hunger and thirst, not for physical or emotional, but for spiritual reality, to be with God. And, of course, Psalm 84, same kind of thing. The psalmist envies the little birds that are able to build their nest near the altars of God so they could be near the place of God's presence. That's what he wants more than anything else. And uh, Gali concludes, the psalmists were driven by a desire to know God, not just to do his will, 
not just to be wise or righteous, but to know God, to be with God, to bask in his presence. That's a wonderful description of David in this psalm. Let's go on to look at verses 2 through 4. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. Again, note how personal these are. And notice, again, imagination. David says, I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. Now, sometimes in that sanctuary, over the Ark of the Covenant in Israel's history, there was the Shekinah glory, some kind of outburst of amazing light and power and energy somehow. I don't know that there's any record of that happening in David's life that I can remember. But David says, I looked upon you in the sanctuary. When he worshipped God, before the place where God's presence was, he saw God, at least in his heart's imagination. I suggest that's because he was so close, so familiar with God, mind you, without our scriptures. All he probably had was what we call the Pentateuch, and maybe not all of that, certainly in the form we know it. Those scriptures and the life of Israel and what he had learned in his own worship gave him the material to see God. I think uh, this is one of the most amazing men as he thinks his way through this psalm. Uh, verse 5 through 8. My soul is satisfied as with a rich feast, and my mouth praises you with joyful lips when I think upon you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. He's remembering how much God had given him. And if you remember, he was the youngest of his family, probably uh, not as physically awesome as his brothers. He was out tending sheep when Samuel came to anoint somebody from Jesse's family as the next king. He was ignored by everybody, but he's the one God had picked. And in many ways, he was uh, ignored by a lot of people. Even though he showed great promise, he was sort of secondhand. But God raised him up and did amazing things through David's life. Eventually made him king, and he was able to extend the kingdom almost to the limits that God had promised Abraham. Almost from Egypt over to Babylon. That came under David's rule during his lifetime or shortly thereafter. So God did amazing things with them. And he's thinking about this as he goes. And I perhaps would suggest that in times of difficulty, it's good to run through some of the amazing things God has done for us. Because that teaches us who God is and feeds that hunger for his presence. Then the tone changes in 9 and 10 as he thinks about that horde that is pursuing him, trying to destroy him. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be prey for jackals. Now, this is all future tense. They shall be. These are things that are going to happen in the future. That is, by faith. 
David believes what God said to him a long time ago, that there would always be one of David's sons or descendants sitting on the throne of God's people. So the faith David has populates the present when there's almost no hope, when things are really going bad. That faith populates the future, and he knows what's going to happen to those people who are pursuing them. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They'll be thrown out for the animals to eat. So faith gives him confidence, even in spite of the evidence. Now, do you remember Hebrews 11.1, the definition of faith, the evidence of things not seen. So David is able to live this walk with God by faith, even in things that he can't see. And then verse 11 the conclusion of his psalm and his prayer. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. David reflects on his own future. This also is future tense, shall. It's going to happen sometime. And again, it's by faith, and it's his own future. The king shall rejoice in God. Those who swear by God shall exult, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. So this is the poem that David put together in my imagination on his way down the hill, so to speak, amidst all the difficulties, and reflected on, perhaps perfected in time to come. How do we make sense of that for our own life? I've tried to imaginatively construct how it came about. Came about. Now let's imaginatively construct how it shows up in our lives. Verse 1, maybe you need to remind yourself of the contents of these. Keep the scripture in front of you. Don't we sometimes experience God's absence? And like David, hunger while we're experiencing that absence for his closeness? Maybe we feel we're living in a wilderness away from everything really meaningful, away from God. Have you had that experience? I think many of us have. Is our relationship with God rich enough that when we feel his absence, it's like hunger and thirst, which is the way David expressed his experience? So we pray in the midst of that and talk to him about our need for him. Not so much, Lord, give us food, give us water, give us shelter, give us safety, give us all these material things, but give us yourself. And verses 2 through 4, how do you react to that absence of God experience? Does it cause you to reflect on what you know of him and the places in the past where you have actually met with him? And I think David is again thinking mostly of the tent of meeting and the Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you remember the story, David uh, bought on a certain circumstance uh, from a pagan Uh, that had been one of the original inhabitants of Jerusalem before the uh, Israelites took it over. He bought this big, flat place of rock, which is a threshing floor. And God told him to dedicate it. And he said, you're not the one to build the temple. Your son will build it. But David had the tent erected and put in it the Ark of the Covenant, which was just a box that contained the flat rock slabs on which God had written what we call the Ten Commandments, the covenant with Israel. So it was the most sacred object of all Israel's story. And over that ark 
were big archangels carved. And in the glory days, they were covered with gold, but sometimes that gold disappeared for various reasons. But the archangels were there. And as I say, sometimes in Israel's history, God appeared there in some miraculous way. I think David often went to the tent, and of course, as a non-priest, he wasn't allowed to go in to the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. But the mere presence, the closeness a few feet away of the Ark of the place where God revealed himself was to David being in the very presence of God, a place where he meets God. And I think that is the place where God's glory resonates for him. Now, here's the shocking news. Jesus himself is our tent of meeting. He is our Ark of the Covenant. Not some religious experience, not some place. It's Jesus himself where we meet God. You remember Philip comes to him in the Gospel of John, and Philip has some folks from some other part of the world who ask him to introduce him to Jesus. And Philip says to him, I, I want to see God. And Jesus turns to Philip, and I can just imagine the tone of his voice. Philip, don't you get it? If you've seen me, you've seen God. Jesus is where we meet God. That's why we sing about him. That's why we pray to him. That's why we memorize the lines about him. That's why we share with brothers and sisters about him. It's not doctrine. It's not church practice. It's Jesus. He is where we meet God, our tent of meeting and our Ark of the Covenant. So the question for us is, do we long to be with him, to be in his presence, as David longs to be with God? Do you remember the two disciples uh, after the resurrection events? They haven't actually seen the resurrection events, so they're a bit puzzled. And they're on their way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus uh, comes by them incognito and engages them in conversation and uh, basically says, you lugs, why don't you understand what's going on? There's enough data here, get with it. And he sits down with them and explains the scriptures. It says, starting with Abraham and Moses, he explains the scriptures. That is, he shows how he's present all the way through the scriptures. And then as he breaks bread with them, he disappears and they hurry back to Jerusalem to report this experience. And what do they say to each other? Didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures? That's when you've been in Jesus' presence, when he opens the scriptures and lets you see God through the word of God. Perhaps like me, you've had a few of those burning heart experiences. That's what we long for. Then verses 5 through 8. Have you ever stopped and counted up? all the things that God has provided in your life up to this point. I made a little list. Health, some measure of wealth. Mine's not too great, but it's there. Opportunity, pleasant experiences, a sense of purpose, fellowship with believers, gifts of capabilities, joy, and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. You could extend that line. Does this lead you to meditate on just who God is? I think that's what David was doing during this difficult journey when the the future looked rather questionable, if not bleak, to him, including his own life. He thought of God taking him from taking care of the sheep and then giving him the victory over Goliath and then making him a mighty leader of Israel's armies and then making him king. 
and providing him with so much, he thought of all the things God had done for him. <coughs> and that led him to meditate on the nature of God. A very good exercise, maybe with pen and pencil or computer, tablet, whatever your way is, to try to make a list of the things you're aware of that God has provided for you up to this point. And then ask yourself, what does this teach me about who God is? And what's my response to that? That's what's going on with David in those verses. Then this curious thing in verses 9 and 10, <coughs> where he's thinking about those who are pursuing him, trying to kill him and take his life. Is there any place for that experience in our experience? I think so. If this is what David wants or expects God to do uh, to those who are trying to destroy him, how should we think about the actions of the enemy of our spirit, both in the world around us and from inside us? By that I mean around us, uh, what I would call our flesh-centered, deception-oriented, hoping only in themselves culture. The older I get, the more angry I get when I look at the Church of Jesus Christ, particularly in North America, and see how crippled in many ways it has become because it has listened to the culture. That's the enemy. We have to look at it very carefully through God's lens. And then there's the enemy inside us, which, is, which are the voices of, the, of Satan himself, pulling us away from the things of God toward the things of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So there's real enemies for us, maybe not human beings, uh, certainly not the other political party or whatever happens to be. It's the world. And if you read the New Testament letters, all of the writers of the letters in the New Testament spend a lot of time talking about recognizing the enemy in the world and taking steps to keep from forming your life by the enemy's wishes. So David had enemies, and we have enemies. And David brings those before the Lord and trusts the Lord to deal with his enemies. And then verse 11 is David's own expectation of his future, that he'll overcome his opponents and be able to rejoice in God again. I think he's thinking of going back into the tent of meeting before the Ark of the Covenant and worshiping again. And... While he's doing that, all those who oppose God, which he calls liars, will be stopped. Who are the liars? People who distort the truth. Is that not a description of much of our current culture? People who distort the truth. Individuals, corporations, government, all sorts of powers distorting the truth. David says they will be treated to destruction by God himself. So David's expectation of the future is he will overcome and be able to rejoice in God again. So when we're struggling <clears throat> with attacks from the enemy, things that make us miserable, make us worry about who we are in God's presence, does he even love us? Sometimes does he even exist? We can turn to this psalm and recognize that David was going through an awfully, awfully, awfully worse time than we're going through because his life was at stake. He was driven away from all the things he loved, all the great things he had built, but he had faith in God. And so he could look forward to what God was going to do by faith.
So we have a little time, and I would like to share with you a question I ask myself. What do I look forward to in the context of this psalm? Let's just take a minute or so, and I won't say anything, and let's reflect. And what do we look forward to in the light of David's experience? I hate to break into your thoughts, but maybe you could jot a few notes and continue us sometime when you have more time to yourself. In conclusion, I should point out that there are 73 psalms that have underneath them the title of David, and 14 of them have little notes saying what was going on in David's life. They're very good things to try to dig into and imagine your way into understanding what's going on. This psalm, 63, comes out of an experience painful and life-threatening, probably not very close to what most of us will experience, but close enough that some of the things we've experienced that he was going through can fit us in our imagination. We can look at the situations that make us worry and be afraid and be comforted by the reality coming from our faith in God. One of our co-workers in the International Fellowship of uh, Evangelical Students and IFS, uh, uh, David Ivaska, out of his own experience of wrestling with fear and worry, wrote a Bible study on fear and worry. It was bound up eventually in a little paperback version. It has gone zillions of publications around the world because people in every culture struggle with fear and worry. And David found, as this David found, that what could bring you into God's presence would dissipate and take away your fear and worry and give you the strength to live with it. Faith tells us that he will restore us in his time and his way to full, rich closeness to him. Not necessarily to health, not necessarily to wealth, not necessarily to peace, not necessarily to success, not the way we might phrase what our future ought to be, but the sense of the nearness of God. His saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what David longed for. So use the Psalms to imagine yourself being taken out of the circumstances of your own life and being made able to overcome the problems that surround you 
by bringing you into the rich fellowship with the Lord. No matter how overwhelming these other circumstances look, if you trust God, spend time in his presence, come to know him, then you become more and more able to exercise faith that he will never leave you. He will never desert you. He will never let you go things through things, through experiences that he doesn't give you the power to handle. That he'll be with you every way you go, everywhere you go. That's one of the blessings of the Psalms. So imagine yourself into the Psalms for your life. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, for these wonderful guides you've given us that really focus us into every kind of episode of our lives and give us the perfection of your men and women who saw you and loved you and hungered to be with you in the midst of whatever life was throwing at them. We praise you that no word of yours will come back to you empty-handed. And so these psalms are given to us by your spirit to bear us richly into your presence. Lord, help us to hunger and thirst for your presence more than for all the things around us. Help us to use these psalms and other scriptures to come close to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.